everybody, you're listening to the Raw Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. This podcast is about rope bondage. Rope bondage is edge play with inherent risk. And we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to our episode zero on safety and consent in rope before attempting it. Find it at the top of our FedLife page, Rope Podcast. Fox is a rigger and Maya is a bottom, and we're rope partners who've been practicing together for nearly five years. We live in Bangkok and love to share our passion for rope with the wider community. Today's episode is sponsored by Friction Live. Friction Live offers a variety of kink classes, mostly centered around rope and things you can do to complement your rope, which you can follow along from the comfort of your own couch, your kitchen, your bed, rope dojo. You can attend the class live or view it recorded at your convenience. Check them out on frictionlive.ca. And today we're really pleased to be talking to Sube. We are, and Sube is a Shibari artist and the founder of Kokoro Studio based in Hong Kong. She was first introduced to Shibari eight years ago and spent the first few years exploring and learning the different styles from several well-respected Nawashi in Japan. In 2014, she met and was deeply inspired by Yukimura Haruki, and from then on, she dedicated herself to the study of the traditional Japanese style. In 2015, she met Naka Akira and chose to focus her study on his style of Seminawa. She continues to explore her own style of Seminawa, which she describes as both feminine and inclusive. She teaches and performs internationally. And we indeed attended one of Sube's classes on empathy and rope and loved her focus on the feelings and emotions in rope. Welcome, Sube. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so, Sube, to get us started, uh, can you tell us how you got started with rope in the first place? Um, so, I actually started as a rope bottom, mm -hmm. um, but before I got to know Shibari at all, I was curious about BDSM. So I think I was first introduced to rope bondage, which I think is a little bit broader than shibari. Okay. Um, so I was just exploring different uh, items in BDSM, and I met a Canadian couple in Hong Kong. Um, so they offered to tie me, and I'm like, well, I didn't know that there was something called rope bondage at the time. Mm. Um, so they tied me, and there was this very special feeling that even now I cannot really articulate it's this feeling of falling in love it's like um having this kind of shooting excitement over my body and I still remember vividly that moment um so that's why I started you know getting to know more about ropes and then shibari um there's this feeling of security that I've never felt before Okay. And also this very weird mix of sadness and happiness. Um, it's very paradoxical. Um, and I also feel that is very different from other kinds of bondage I experienced before. Mm -hmm. Um, shibari to me is more indirect versus, you know, using, uh, leather cuffs, which are very direct and, you know, purpose driven. Yeah. Um, so I just felt very special at that moment. And that's how I got curious about rope. Amazing. 
And how how did things progress? We we heard that you or we read that you had a difficult experience when an American rope expert visited Hong Kong, and that was then the start of you learning rope as a rigger. So can you tell us a bit about how that journey progressed? Well, to be honest, I almost forgot about this episode because it's not really something that positive. Um, so at that time in Hong Kong, there was barely a shibari community. Um, there were sometimes some like one-off workshops uh, when there are foreigners coming to Hong Kong because at that time, uh, we don't really have much education in Hong Kong. So um, he visited Hong Kong and at that time, I didn't know uh, much about Shibari and I asked him if he could tie me so I could experience it. And also, I've never been suspended before. Um, so, I, so I asked him and he said that, quote, uh, you're not really pretty why should i tie you ouch that's not great to me that was a shock um yeah i till now i don't know how to react to that because honestly i don't think anyone could say something that hurtful um but now thinking back i am kind of glad that he did what he did because that kind of kick-started my whole shibari journey I'm not saying that what he did was right for sure. Um, so at that time I was thinking, um, cause fat life was really popular at the time with kinky and popular. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that there were always like skinny, tall young girls getting tied. And I'm, I'm not saying that that's not right. That's completely fine, but it's not the, it's, that's not all. Like I don't understand why it's, you know, why only pictures portraying this kind of girls and I also noticed that there are usually men tying not women tying or other genders tying at least it's not really portrayed in the mainstream media Mm -hmm. and also I noticed that most people who are good at like tying a lot of times they have a very big ego and it's almost like a show-off act and I was so confused at the time because I didn't know why this is going on. Um, and then I just started wanting to learn more about Shibari, about teaching, about how like this community is like, in fact. Mm. And so how, how did things progress there? What did you do to create that diversity, your side? Well, um, I think it's a very difficult topic or question um many people ask me about how to break the stereotypes um i think there are a lot of stereotypes around body size and about gender um but to me to start with i don't actually think about that i don't categorize or segregate certain people from the the big group because when I do that, I'm actually also discriminating, if you understand my, my, my thought. Yeah. So, cause, um, so for example, I see a lot of workshops, um, which are very good. So they, um, teach ties that are suitable for men or suitable for bigger bodies. But at the same time, I wonder why generalize? Why are all, why do people think that men must be inflexible or bigger people must be inflexible? Because when I tie in my experience, that's not the, the reality. And so sometimes I wonder, 
instead of um using all these adjectives and like um sticking to all these stigma or even furthering these stigma, why can't we just you know be simple about it and just not give any acknowledgement or recognition to these stereotypes? Mm, if not, we're just you know taking part of it. Absolutely, that makes sense. So your uh, Japanese teachers were mainly Yukimura Haruki and Naka Akira, right? Mm, I would say that my only teacher is Naka Akira. Okay. Um, Yukimura Sensei was someone who had a very huge influence on my style, um, because he's my first—I won't say first teacher, because I think teacher is a very special term. Or special relationship, but he's a Nawashi that influenced me heavily at the start. And what in the style of Yukimura drew you? What attracted you in that style? Um, actually, when I first met him, I was very new to Shibari, and a lot of the things he taught me, I only started being able to process them like years after. And till now, I'm still trying to understand more. Of what he told me,、um, I think what really attracted me or impressed me was the very caressing, inclusive, equal style, and his humility.、Um, that is also related to my story with the American rigger who visited Hong Kong, because it was like two two different like two different ends on the spectrum. Okay.、Um, so Yukimura Sensei. Taught me how to use rope to have a conversation.、Um, so it's not about the form, but about you know the connection between the two persons.、Mm. All right. And then as you went towards Naka style, what did you find was different in Naka compared to Yukimura? I think Naka Sensei's style is totally different from Yukimura Sensei.、Um, so. Yukimura Sensei focuses more on the softer side of things, while Naka Sensei is about semenawa, about taking someone to the to the edge, expressing the most raw feelings.、Um, and also for Yukimura Sensei,、um, he ties in a very、uh, close way, so a lot of proximity. Well, for Naka Sensei, he does it through distance. So I would say again, it's like two ends on on the spectrum.、Hmm. Um, yeah. And so, what draws you personally, Subei, to the more Seminawa style? Um, to be honest, I don't know what Seminawa is.、Hmm. Um, it's very difficult、uh, to define Seminawa, and many people ask me why I'm drawn to this style. But to be honest, I don't even know if I do seminawa at all because I think it depends on the person that I'm tying.、Um, it might be the same tie, the same suspension.、Uh, the bottom, she might feel that it's a very caressing kind of su- suspension. While some people might think that it's a very harsh one, really taking her to the extreme emotionally. So I think it really depends on the rock bottom. But I think generally, why I am interested in Semenawa is because I like to see the deepest part of someone's heart,、mm-hmm. being able to see through him or her, taking him or her to 
the very extreme where I can really see the person. And that is something very rare in our world right now because we always hide our feelings. But I always feel like in rope, it's, it's difficult or even impossible to lie. And I like to see the raw feeling of someone. Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. Listeners like you make this podcast possible. We want to continue making this podcast for you for a long time. And to do that, we need your support. Please go to ropepodcast.com to buy rope video lessons from experts so we get a small commission on your purchase at no extra cost to you. In addition, a really great way to help us is donating on Patreon. A one-time amount or a monthly pledge that can be as little as the cost of your morning coffee makes a big difference to us. And you will gain cool perks like behind-the-scenes photos and the ability to vote on future podcast topics. Go support us on ropepodcast.com because you love rope too. So, Subay, we attended one of your classes earlier about empathy in rope. And I was mm. curious, as a rigger, how to use rope to relate to the emotions to the person you are tying? Mm. Um, so, I think... But you attended my class, so I started by saying that empathy is a very abstract idea. And we often talk about connection, communication. And somehow it's, it's like we are all using it to, to package what we do. Um, I think the starting point of empathy is not something concrete that you can do. I think the starting point is about giving space to the person that you're tying because if you don't do that it's impossible for you to observe anything at all um i think sometimes people they're um attempting a lot of ways to try to connect to the person but sometimes they find it very difficult not because they're doing all the wrong stuff but because maybe the rock bottom has not really opened his or her heart And or maybe the rope top is not ready to open his or her heart. So I think the starting point is being open and being being vulnerable, allowing the other person to explore your darkest secrets or desires. Mm. Okay, so when you're rope bottoming, uh, building on that, so this idea of opening your heart, how do you communicate your emotions? How do you be vulnerable to your partner when you're bottoming? Oh, this is a very difficult question. Um, to be honest, I don't know because when I when I get tired, I just try to let go. Um, I don't think about I don't think about what he is going to do. Um, and I just react according to how I feel at the time. So it's more about going with the flow. I often use the analogy of water. Um, you, while I get tied, I can feel the tension, the intensity, the direction. So it's like water in a way that it can be like water in a lake that is quieter. It can be flowing water in a river. It can be water in an ocean, water in a, a, a waterfall. And 
uh, depending on the tension and the, the intensity, then different things will come out. But the, the, the starting point, again, like what I said just now, is being open about it and just, you know, being at the moment with your partner. I don't think there are like, um, like a, a formula to, um, about how to communicate your emotions per se, if you know what I mean. I think we do. So in Rope, people talk a lot about the concept of connection, of connecting while you do Rope. What mm -hmm. do you think people can do to improve their connection in Rope? Mm. Um, I think they need to be very observant, really paying attention to all the small details. Um, I think it comes in two parts. One is first understanding the person you are tying, even before you lay ropes and on the person. Um, sometimes it's about, you know, having a conversation with them, understanding about their story, understanding them as a person. And, um, usually even before I tie, I look at, for example, what they wear to come to tie with me. That will give me a better idea of of what they're like or what they're expecting out of the session, how they're sitting, their, um, their posture, their breathing, that tells me a lot. And that's before I even start to tie the person. And the second part of it would be their reaction as I tie the person. Um, tension is the very core part of it. Um, understanding when I use different tension and intensity how they're reacting. Um, and the reactions can tell you, can represent different, different feelings. For example, if the person is really tense, um, it can mean that the person is very, uh, afraid or it can mean the person is very excited. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the interesting part of Shibari because it's like, again, it's like guessing what the person is feeling at the moment and then trying to do more to get more out of out of it and try to understand more um and i would say details like uh timing uh giving uh and also using the the concept of distance tying very closely or tying at a distance and how that evoke different feelings leading to emotions to the person um so these are all like concepts or or things that the rooftops can pay attention to um but i would say that in practice it's very hard because when we are tying there are so many things we need to watch out for um definitely techniques and safety so it's difficult to to balance you know being able to do a safe tie and also paying attention to every part of your rock bottom. Do, do you um, feel that so, as the rigor gets more experienced and the technique becomes easier, then it sort of frees up part of the brain to pay more attention to the feelings and to your partner because you're not so much focused on actual tying? I would say generally, yes. When you get more familiar with a tie or some techniques, it becomes like part of your muscle memory then you have more capacity to really observe your rock bottom. But at the same time, um, I think it can also be an obstacle 
like you being more more experienced um because then when you get more experience you would attempt more advanced ties and that would again block part of your capacity to tie so it really depends on a person i've also seen some relatively new people uh, who are really good at observing even though they are doing very uh simple ties which are quite difficult to them at their level um so actually when i teach um i tell my students that they should not attempt the next level of technique until they can tie at their current level with like uh with connection oh that's very nice so for example um uh, i teach a gote I tell them you need to do the first rope of the gote technically right with good tension, with good wrap placement, and then you need to try to tie the first rope while the while connecting with your rope bottom, really understanding her, being able to tie when the rope bottom is really falling and being engaged in a moment. Um, because if the person is just sitting there not moving and tying, it's it's very easy to tie. But when the person is really in the moment, then it's a different issue. So I always use the analogy of uh, a surgery. Um, I think in the West, many people they uh, teach by uh, you know advancing through you know single column gote, different harnesses, and then suspension. And then they teach how to connect, how to engage with the emotions. Then to me, it's like doing a successful surgery and then looking at the patient and seeing her or him dead. Mm. On it. So um, this is like quite extreme analogy, but I think it's quite, quite, quite funny because um, I think it's important that whenever we place a rope on a person, we need to know the very intent and purpose and what kind of feelings it might evoke. Okay, and that's super interesting. And you've come up against um, one of the challenges I sometimes have with this concept, which is one of the limits around um, empathy and emotions in rope, which is that no human being can ever truly know what's in someone else's head. And as you say, emotions can present physically in one way, so excitement and fear can seem the same from the outside, but it's hard for us to know which one it is in the person's head. So what do you feel the limits are to empathy and emotions in rope? Mm, you already said it. That, I think that's a very limitation of empathy because we can never understand the other person. Um, so I think that empathy is more about exploring rather than getting the, the result. It's about the process. Um, so we need to be honest with ourselves that we can never understand the other person entirely. And the other person also needs to respect that. Um, um, I think somehow this is also related to the concept of consent. I am not living in the West, so I'm not quite familiar with all the all the uh, debate around consent, but I think it comes, or I think one of the reasons can be traced to this kind of gap between the rope top and the rope bottom, because sometimes the rope top is, cannot really understand the rope bottom entirely. And 
the top can make a really wrong judgment and decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the West, um, it is a very strict approach. If things go wrong, then it is a consent violation, which I totally respect. Um, but at the same time, I think there are people who subscribe to different modes, meaning they uh, accept that sometimes things can go wrong, mm. and they respect that and they forgive that things that for, forgive the mistakes of the rooftop. Um, so I think this is well. I think ultimate empathy really takes place when you can accept and recognize that it is impossible to understand the other person. Um, and then you can really truly understand the other person better if you can if you can recognize this. When you're tying with empathy, do you usually include talking to your partner while you're tying them or are you usually quiet when you tie? I am usually quite quiet. Yes. Hmm. Um because I don't believe in words. We use a lot in our like everyday setting, mm-hmm. and I feel like we lie a lot, like good lies, bad lies. So I will, I like to feel the other person better, and to mm-hmm. me, silence is a way of communication. And it's like the sometimes it, it's weird, but sometimes I feel like it can transmit through the air, like the the air around me is also a kind of a kind of language for me. Mm, all right. For our listeners who are rope bottoms, what kind of advice can you give them on how to express and communicate their emotions better during rope? Mm. Um, I would say first they need to have more trust in the rope top. I mean, trust in the way of the reaction. I see a lot of times that rope bottoms are scared of of moving in ropes. Mm. Um, they're worried that it will maybe distort uh, distort the structure, mm. or you know make it more difficult for the rope top. But when they do that, it's actually barring communication because if the person is not moving, if you're not falling into the rope then you, the rope top cannot really feel the tension. Mm-hmm. Then tension is the very thing that I personally, for me, that, that I use to communicate with my rope bottom. So I think number one thing is really trusting yourself in the rope that your, your, your rope top has placed onto you. Yeah. And you make a, a good point that empathy and communication is two-way. So how, as a rope top, can our listeners uh, learn to communicate their own emotions to their bottom um, and explore their partner's emotions better in rope? Hmm. Um, actually, years ago, I was finding it very difficult to do the same. Um, I think number one thing is slowly starting to open your heart. Because many people talk about rope bottoms being vulnerable. But if communication is a two-way thing, then the rope top also needs to open his or her heart. And it's very difficult because when you are guiding or taking control while being vulnerable, it's, it's difficult. But it's something that, that we need to learn to do. Um, 
So, and I also think that、um, communication in rope extends to when you are not tying the person. So for me, I don't tie. I tie a lot of people, but I don't have a tying relationship with a lot of rope bottoms, because to me,、um, if I want to truly be able to communicate with with someone during shivari, I need to know the person in their everyday life too. I really need to have a, an ongoing relationship with the person, understanding their past. Being supportive at all times, and、mm. I think this is very important for rope tops. So it shouldn't be, you know, oh, let's come and tie, and then after that we don't talk at all. I think、mm. it's an ongoing relationship.、Mm. So Subei, you have traveled all over the world for rope performance. I'm curious to hear how the different rope cultures and the different rope communities that you met all over the world were, and what's Was the most obvious to you in the difference between one country and one other?、Hmm. Um, it's very interesting.、Um, I think I'll start with、uh, my experience in the U.S.、Hmm. I once did a performance in on East Coast in a rope conference. I think it was my first time, and I remember that when I started suspending. Everyone started clapping their hands. I was very shocked because、mm. I didn't know what that meant.、Um, I, I so at that time I think that U.S. community is more about the show.、Um, it's more upbeat,、um, but of course I don't want to generalize because I think there's been a lot of development in the West lately. A lot of Japanese nawashi visiting, so they have a different kinds of concepts, or at least they're exposed to that.、Um, I think in general, in in America,、um, people are more interested in the 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 very dynamic suspension.、Um, I think also in Europe,、um, I heard something about competitive bottoming or competitive masochism. Mm-hmm. Um. So then, the rock bottoms challenging, you know, different,、uh, very advanced, difficult suspensions.、Mm-hmm. Um. And I think in the West, in America, in Europe, they are very much about engineering and safety. Yeah,、um, okay. They try to, uh, understand things in a very structured way. Uh, many people ask me to teach about aesthetics. And emotions.、Um, it's immensely difficult for me because the way I learn shibari, it's not in a very structured way. I watch, and every time I get something,、mm. next time maybe I watch the same sequence, the same tie, and I learn something new. So I just, you know, accumulate that over the years. It's more While organic, West, but not as mechanical. Yes, thank you for phrasing it this way. Yes. So it's a it's very structured,、uh, which has its good,、um, and sometimes、uh, I think that in the West they like to、uh, incorporate different styles. So it's like a hybrid instead of subscribing to one style.、Um, so the good thing is that they really they can really adapt 
to different rock bottoms. So they use different styles depending on the body types and what they like. Um, but which is very different from my way because uh, when I learn, I only learn from one teacher. Mm. Um, so um, I think in, in Japan, there are, I think many people have certain concepts about the, the community in, in Japan. For example, they think that it's usually more men time than female because usually in the in the shows or in videos usually they are the male nawashi but in reality actually there are a lot more female time in japan so it's quite interesting actually because i think a lot of the times when the western people come to japan they don't really see the community in Japan because they don't really go to the SM bars mm-hmm. or go to the events. Um, they only see the very uh, top Nawashi, who are most of them are, are male. Um, and in general, I feel like in Japan, indeed, the people who are tying the rooftops, they tend to focus and observe the person better. Um, in general, people don't really use safe words. So to counter that, they must observe the person better because in case things go wrong, then they can stop immediately. So because then again, the responsibility is not shared in the same way, right? Because if the bottom yes. is using a safe word, then the bottom takes part of the responsibility. But in a culture where safe words are not common, then the responsibility, it seems to me, is more all on the side of the top, right? Yes. Um, so I think again, there is good and bad, but it's very, very different. Um, so when I go to teach or perform overseas, um, I need to, sometimes I'm quite worried about, you know, doing something that would event, uh, the people in the West because like, I don't really understand the cultures and I'm still learning. Um, so I, I think that in Japan, one thing that, that really strikes me is that, um, there are a lot of events, organizers, SM bars, different styles. They are all very unique. Mm. Um, of course, there are some kind of clashes between styles, but ultimately they stay as like one community. Uh, I remember that Yukimura sensei said that Ultimately, we are one rock family, mm-hmm. and I really hope to see that in the West, because I I think that now the West are still you know everyone is trying to to consolidate their styles, and I hope that one day in the West they can converge and also mm-hmm. be like in Japan where it's like a one rock family. All right, thank you, Sube. That was super interesting. Uh, if some of our listeners ever go to Hong Kong, can they contact you for classes? Definitely. Although I will be moving out of Hong Kong very soon. <laughs> oh, what's oh. your destination? I will probably move to London. Oh, year. well, you will definitely, definitely have a lot of interest there, I am quite sure. Uh, so that's all from us today at the Rope Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from and come friend us on our FetLife page, Rope Podcast. If you have a question related to rope, we'd love to answer it in one of our future episodes. So drop us a message on FetLife. 
And if you like this podcast and would enjoy more episodes, find all the ways to support us on our website, rockpodcast.com. And in particular, please consider supporting us directly on our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying.